I'm pleased to welcome all of you to what's become a tradition. For 35 years, we've started each new year with an economic forecast luncheon. And this year, we've assembled an experienced panel to discuss the issues, markets, politics, and quite frankly, anything else that's on our panelists' minds. When we look back at the turbulent year that was 2011, it's remarkable that Canada has fared as well as it has. From a political perspective, the uncertainty in Europe, the Middle East, Egypt, and Libya captivated us all. Economically, the European debt crisis, the uncertainty around the euro, although not to the guy that guessed it right, and the US debt crisis held our attention. Higher unemployment, a dwindling job market, Occupy movements. And while all this was happening, we had a consistent rise in the economic power of non-OECD countries, which now produce more than half the world's GDP. But that was last year. So what does 2012 have in store? Can Canada continue to grow and yet not be detrimentally affected by political and economic headwinds and chaos abroad? What will a year of probable political and economic gridlock in Washington mean to us? What are the major economic challenges and opportunities for 2012? Let's turn our attention now to our panelists and their forecasts for the year ahead. To those here, I'd ask you to hold your applause until I've finished introducing our panelists and head table guests. And to those at you at the head table, I'd ask you to stand as I call your name and remain standing as you're introduced. Gordon Fisher, President, National Post and Executive Vice President, Eastern Canada, Post Media. Kim Parley, anchor, Business Day, BNN, Business News Network, and our moderator for today's lunch. Warren Justin, Senior Vice President, Chief Economist, Scotiabank. Terence Corcoran, Financial Post Editor, Financial Post Magazine Editor, The National Post. Nan Oldrod, Vice President, Human Resources, Conventional Operations, Loblaw, 2011 Diversity Fellow. Joan Iveson, seldom seen in Toronto, the National Columnist for The National Post. Sue Graham Parker, Senior Vice President, Public, Corporate and Government Affairs, Scotiabank. Diane Francis, Ed Financial Post Editor-at-Large, National Post, and Andrew Coyne, new national columnist, Post Media, and the National Post. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table. I would like to express our special thanks to today's sponsor, Scotiabank, represented by Sue Graham Parker and Warren Justin. Thanks both for joining us today and for your support in making this lunch possible. I'd like to remind everyone who's here at the, at the Royal York today that there are cards on the table. They look like this, Outlook 2012 cards. Uh, these are question cards. If you have questions while our panelists are speaking, you're invited to fill these cards out. Our staff will pick them up and we'll answer those questions as, uh, as time allows at the end of the planned part of the presentation. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kim Parley who will lead us through what we hope is a lively, thoughtful and engaging conversation today. Thank you very much, and hello and new, a happy new year to everybody in the room. Um, very pleased to be moderating this year's event, and I would like to thank the Canadian Club of Toronto and the National Post for inviting me to participate this year. 2011 was, I think we could safely say, an incredible year on a number of different fronts, uh, but one the Canadian financial community is probably quite happy to leave behind. TSX was down about 11 percent. It's the first time since 2003 it has underperformed the rest of the indices. And a mere $6.3 trillion was wiped away in market capitalization over the past year. And much in part was because of, of course, the European debt crisis, uh, which triggered concern and nervousness and everything that happened in the markets. So it got me thinking, and some of you may know this, is that I'm, I'm a relatively new mother. 
I have a toddler at home, and I was thinking about the parallels between the European debt crisis and my toddler. For example, there's, there's screaming and tantrums, there's made-up words and babbling, and there's the holding the breath till they get their way. And then there's the toddler. <laughs> Moving on to 2012, as we said, uh, actually things are looking much brighter from the prognosticators that I've spoken to. But let me tell you a bit about how today's program will work, what's going to happen, and what you're going to hear. Um, each panelist, which was just introduced to you, will be presenting their outlook for you for 2012. And uh, to your speakers, if you're listening to me, you will have six minutes to present your ideas and just six minutes. I will warn you, I will cut you off mid-sentence if you're still talking at six minutes. Because we do want to leave enough time for everyone at the end uh, to submit their questions. Now, all of you, I believe, have on your table in front of you a card that says Outlook 2012. Uh, please use it. Take that opportunity. Write down your question at any point. Uh, someone will be coming around during the, uh, the discussions to gather those cards, bring them to me. And here's the great thing. If you're too embarrassed to ask your question, I'll ask it. Just pass it on up to me and I'll ask not everything that's on there, but I will be uh, pretty true to whatever's on the card right now. Now, you will notice that absent from any of the forecasters that were introduced, we have no Mayans, which means that, you know, it probably won't be that apocalyptic, I think. But then again, I know some of the people on the panel, so it might be a little bit apocalyptic. Uh, and as I mentioned at the end, we will be opening up the panel for your questions through the question cards. So, without first or, uh, further delay, let's bring up our first victim, I mean first presenter, Terence Corcoran. Thank you very much, Kim. And uh, I should, uh, well, Happy New Year, Happy 2012 to everybody, and thank you very much for for being here today. I should warn you, I have a bit of a cold, so I may have to stop and sniffle and do things that people who have colds do. Uh, uh, but before we get to uh, the forecasts and predictions, I thought it might be useful to, uh, to pause and take a look at what we've gone through over the past year and what I think continues to be the major economic and political development, actually, the past couple of years. And it was not as Time Magazine described or declared the Occupy Wall Street movement and public demonstrations in the Arab nations. Although the idea that the Occupy movement's anti-Wall Street crusade is somehow equivalent to the Arab Spring uprising against murderous tyrants ranks as one of the great intellectual grotesqueries of the year. And the major event of last year was also not the European crisis and the threat to the continued existence of the Euro, or the mad scramble to bail out bankrupt Euro nations and banks with taxpayer money. Nor was it America's economic stagnation and looming fiscal crisis. None of these events capture the major underlying trend of the past year. Now, this dominant force around the world today is the continuing decline in the policymaking based on an economic theory that came to be known as Bazookonomics. Now, it came to be known as Bazookonomics because that's what I came to call it last month. Now, I did not invent this new school of economics, although I do see an opportunity to turn the concept into one of the world's first comic economics textbooks. So far, though, all I have is a cover for this comic economic textbook, which I believe you all have on your table. Uh, this is as far as I've gotten so far, and I may not get much f further. Now, it came to be known as Bazookonomics because that's what it, uh, uh, that's what, that's the word that uh, Hank Paulson used back in 2008. I'm going to quote you from what he said. This was on the eve of the, or just after the U.S. housing crisis had started up and he was looking for solutions to problems. And he said, and it's quoted in the little comic book item you have there. If you have a bazooka in your pocket and people know it, you probably won't have to use it. Now, as Mae West might have said, had she come across Mr. Paulson in a bar one night, <laughs> if you have a bazooka in your pocket, you're probably a horse. 
And what we have learned over the last three years is that people in the markets are not necessarily glad to see governments hauling out bazookas to solve economic problems. Bazookanomics theory was dominated and has dominated economic policy since 2008. Massive quantitative easing, massive borrowing and spending by governments all over the world to stimulate the world economy. Official interest rates at near zero to encourage people to borrow more money and to spend their way out of a global recession. Massive financial regulation, such as the US Dodd-Frank legislation. In November, British Prime Minister David Cameron called for another big bazooka plan. Those are his words. Now, bazookanomics is based on the idea that governments are the primary sources of economic growth and prosperity. Governments are seen to be at the commanding heights of government uh, and of the world economy, and that's a phrase from Lenin, uh, and a position Daniel Jurgen showed to be catastrophic in his 1998 book. And many of the world's economists embraced bazookanomics. They became masters of military metaphors. Governments needed a full arsenal of policies. They discussed whether the US Fed had run out of bullets and ammunition to fight off recession and create jobs. Now, no wonder capital spending is stagnating. Investors, corporations, and financial institutions, the real generators of jobs and wealth creation, are sitting on unprecedented, unprecedented stockpiles of cash, trillions of dollars waiting to be invested, waiting for the opportunity, waiting for the end of bazookanomics. Well, it is coming to an end, at least that's the way I see things. What we are seeing in Europe today, in the United States and here in Canada, especially here in Ontario, is the slow unraveling of bazookanomics and that model and the beginning of a return to policy that is more grounded in sound economics and a little less dependent on crazy military analogies and metaphors. And so today, the world is in transition. The power and influence of government is beginning to decline. The left is in retreat defensive, constantly clamoring to protect its declining authority and authenticity. The Occupy movement, to a large degree, is a manifestation of this defensiveness. The NDP and the Liberals are in disarray in Canada. And look at Europe. For all the talk of new bazookanomic solutions, Europe is in fact rolling back government spending, the beginning of a long process of reversal that will continue for years. My favorite microcosm of European government withdrawal from its entrenched excesses is in Italy. Thousands of government subsidies are being killed, including money that supports several communist newspapers. At one such subsidized paper, Liberazione, reporters occupied the newsroom to protest the closure of their paper. But the last copy was published New Year's Eve. Italy, as a result, is sure to be a better place. In Canada, Ottawa and the provinces are gearing up for a pullback in government spending that could prove to be greater than the cutbacks of the 1990s. The government of Ontario is heading for a spending crisis that may see an early election and a change in government before the next four years are up. Remember that these are trends, part of a larger and broader winds of change. But as the trends unfold and become more apparent, stock markets will rise this year Capital investment will return, begin to return, jobs will be created. Transformation will come sooner if, as I predict, Mitt Romney wins the Republican nomination and the U.S. presidency in November. If that prediction is wrong, President Barack Obama, in his second term, will in fact have no choice but to begin putting an end to the era of bazookanomics in the United States. Thank you very much. Have a happy new year and look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, especially for the Mae West imagery. I will not forget that. All right, let's bring up our next uh, speaker without delay, Warren Justin. Warren. Well, I'd like to thank Terrence for outlining uh, bazookanomics. I don't have to go over that now. And I don't have enough time to do my uh, wrap-up of my uh, forecast predictions last year, so I'll go right into this year's. Uh, uh, economic uh, fearless forecast, bearing in mind, of course, that economic forecasts can be hazardous to your wealth. 
We think about the economy in cyclical terms. We talk about recession and recovery, but I think, and, and, and uh, Terence uh, looked at this a little bit, what is driving the economy right now is structural change. By the end of this decade, China will be the world's largest economy, not the U.S. And this massive structural change is going to drive economic forces this year and for the balance of the decade. We think about economic risks to the forecast, but in fact, the biggest risks to the forecast are political. We see that in the oil markets today with the concerns of Iran. We've seen it in the fall with the concerns over what's happening in Europe or in mid-year with the, uh, the debt crisis uh, debate on the debt ceiling in the U.S. And the combination of these structural factors and political risks makes the market very, very volatile. So in my brief time today, I'd like to talk about what I think is driving the markets right now. The first one, lunch bag letdown about the outlook for growth, because very, very clearly growth has slowed. In the U.S. and in Canada, for that matter, I don't uh, think that you will see a performance much above 2%. In fact, in, uh, in the Canadian economy, we may struggle to get up to 2% growth in 2012. In Europe, no net growth. Germany may do a little better this year. In fact, the economic indicators are looking pretty good. Uh, in France, they may scrape through with a minor increase, but in many of those economies, we have a banking crisis, financial contraction, and economic recession. In the emerging world, things are slowing down as well. I mean, China may not grow by 9% this year. India may fall below 8% growth. Brazil, under 4% growth. In good years and in bad, those economies effectively are growing much faster than what we're seeing in the traditional economies, such as Canada and the U.S., but at the end of the day, growth is slowing globally. One of the outcomes, of course, uh, is that uh, you're going to see inflation not an issue this year perhaps in agricultural prices, but not in much else. It's important to look in the emerging world, too, about where growth is coming from, increasingly not from exports, but from domestic demand. China is the largest car market in the world right now, second largest market for luxury goods in the world, third largest uh, supplier of global tourists to the world. And many people in China have never traveled beyond their borders. So the world is changing very substantially. What does it mean for Canada? Well, first of all, emerging market growth, continuing at a pretty solid pace, means that commodity prices are going to stay pretty high. The mega projects that are driving Western Canada and Newfoundland Labrador are going to continue, and we're going to be supported in that manner. But if you look at non-commodity exports, we've had problems. The U.S. market is pretty lethargic. The Canadian dollar is near parity, and in my view, will remain there. Although, let's think about where the Canadian dollar has been over the last eight months. It's high as six, and as low as $0.97 or below. 96 cents or below. So effectively, volatility in the currency is one of the message, but the other one is a continued strength in, the, in that particular segment. The housing market is very atypically strong in Canada vis-a-vis -vis almost every market in the world. Is it a bubble? I don't think so. There's very strong demographics and a number of other things that will keep things uh, in relatively solid footing. But in certain high growth markets, I wouldn't be surprised if not only you get volume declines, but also price declines price declines of less than 10%, but nevertheless, the trend to ever-increasing prices is very difficult to sustain when a record number of Canadians now own their homes and we have a slowing in the job market. We also have a factor of slowing growth affecting government efforts to reduce deficits. One of the reasons why the euro crisis will remain uh, with us for some time. The other thing, of course, is in Canada, whether at the federal or the provincial level, slower growth works against growth in government revenues and makes the process of getting back to balance more challenging. So the first factor of the three, lunch bag let down on the outlook for growth. The other one, a never-ender in Europe. We will find that there will be band-aids put over the European fiscal situation. One band-aid after another, perhaps. But the issue on the table now is containment, not cure. Cure isn't even in the cards, and no growth or economic decline has a big impact on the revenues needed to actually move towards a more balanced economic and fiscal structure. We'll be talking about Europe, in my view, and the, and the fiscal situation five years from now. It is a long-term issue. The third and final one that are roaring the markets right now is the fact that the U.S. is not having an adult conversation about its fiscal problems. We have seen that repeatedly over the last year. The long-term strategic vision for fiscal repair is let's do it after the presidential election. In fact, many of the proposals that have been put on the table have, in fact, clicking in over the next two to three years, not over the next two to three months or over the next six months. 
There was a proposal put on the table to balance the U.S. books by 2041, but it was considered much too radical and harsh and has not adopt been adopted. This delay poses big problems for the U.S. because after 2015, the demographics and aging population begin to click in and begin to drive uh, health care, Social Security, and a variety of other issues as well. So the third issue, uh, the fact that the U.S. is not having an adult conversation about its problems. The other two, lunch bag letdown of the outlook for growth and the never ender in Europe, virtually guarantee that our financial markets will remain volatile over the next year. Equity markets fighting through this are going to have a very difficult year, showing much in the way of positive performance. Currency volatility will be with us. Investors are running now to the U.S. because they're more worried about the European fiscal situation. But at the end of the day, you may well find that uh, problems in the U.S. and some Band-Aid solution in Europe may reverse, at least temporarily, those flows. Longer term, I believe the U.S. dollar and the euro will decline against two groups of currencies. Commodity producers, such as Canada and Australia, and emerging market currencies, such as uh, the Chinese RMB. That suggests the Canadian dollar will remain strong over the longer haul, and the way we have to get to prosperity involves improving productivity, improving labor force competitiveness, and skills. What's the take-home message in this particular forecast? Well, as you look around the world, and I travel around the world quite extensively, the one thing that strikes me almost every day is that if you've got to be someplace in this economic turmoil, here is about the best place to be. Thank you very much. Are you sitting at this end or that end? All right, so Terrence started negative, went positive, Warren went positive, and then I think went negative. Let's find out what John Iveson is going to be adding. Please welcome John Iveson. You may have to come up a little bit. Well, I'm going to try not to be one of those weeping prophets uh, who predicts global catastrophe, apocalypse, and dragons. Um, one writer at the FT was typical last year when he, or last month, when he said, uh, uh, "This is not a reprise of the 1970s or even the 1930s. In fact, it's more like the fifth century, the fall of the Roman Empire, and then the start of the Dark Ages." My take is it will not be that bad unless you're in the Federal Public Service. Um, the most watched political event uh, in Ottawa this, in the first half of the year at least, will be the budget in which uh, the dominant theme will be restraint with more than a hint of uh, austerity. Uh, departments have been asked to find between 5 and 10% in savings, and I think Jim Flaherty will go to the upper end of that uh, spectrum which will mean layoffs, but uh, you have to bear in mind that in the first five years of Conservative government, spending went up 25%, and the uh, public service has grown by a third in the last decade, three times population growth. So we won't be, uh, it'll be crocodile tears if we are. We... Uh, I doubt there will be much new spending in the budget, but I think I'm looking for a couple of things where the government may dip into its pocket. Um, firstly, I suspect we may see some progress on the Aboriginal Affairs front, uh, file. Uh, Stephen Harper has agreed to meet the uh, chiefs later this month, something I don't think he would have done unless he thought there was uh, the prospect of some, uh, some progress. Uh, most li likely, I think, are plans to bring in a First Nations Property Ownership Act, uh, which would introduce or at least uh, expand property ownership on reserves. And also, I think uh, the government is pretty far down the line in handing over native education to regional Aboriginal education boards. Uh, these would both require a little bit of spending, I think, so they would probably be in the budget. Neither are panaceas, but I think they would have a, they are structural changes which might have an impact on uh, the abysmal outcomes that we're seeing in places like uh, Atawapiskat. Try saying that after a couple of beers. Um, the other move is to, that I think we will see in the budget is to raise the age of retirement when it comes to qualifying for old age security. Uh, many countries around the world have already acknowledged the need to dramatically uh, reform pensions to keep benefits sustainable. Uh, Otto von Bismarck arbitrarily chose the age of 65 back in the 19th century uh, when very few people reached that frosty peak. Now people born in the 21st century, they're expected to live into their 90s, which means the system has to support them for 30 years. Uh, I don't think that that is uh, sustainable. I don't think the government thinks that, and I think they will uh, 
acknowledge that in the budget. Events on Parliament Hill continue to be a sideshow. The Conservatives will keep driving through the agenda in which they were uh, elected last May. Uh, the copyright bill and the long gun registry still haven't been passed, so there are a, there's a bunch of legislation which is still in the pipe. And they will continue to ignore the protestations of the opposition parties, maintaining the partisan heat in the House, if only uh, to keep the money rolling in from party donors. Uh, a word on the opposition, the NDP is led in the House by a very pleasant lady who would make a, a good mayor of Gatineau in an off year. Uh, it's not really working for a leader of the opposition party, though. And, um, but obviously most of the big hitters are on the road uh, campaigning for their leadership. I think uh, I tipped Tom Mulcair to win that in March. Um, Quebec has only got about 5,000 of the NDP's 90,000 members, but the only public opinion poll we have to go on so far suggests that uh, his, he has the ability to translate beyond his home province. Uh, the business community must hope that Mr Mulcair, uh, Paul Dewar or Nathan Cullen perform well. Uh, the other front runners are Peggy Nash and Brian Topp, and they would not be friends to business. As for the Liberal Party, what can you say? It's been boiled down to its uh, very essence, and despite Bob Ray's adept leadership in the House, uh, it's really a sideshow to a sideshow at the moment. The real action has taken place on the international stage as the Harper government tries to strike uh, new trade deals to compensate for the declining export market, and, uh, and also as it enacts a, a series of uh, an increasingly muscular foreign policy. The word being used is muscular pragmatism to describe what uh, the Conservative government is up to. Uh, we're going to see the fruits of some of the U.S. Uh, border trade and security deal. A number of pilot projects kick in uh, in the middle of the year. Uh, the Canada-EU trade deal is scheduled to be concluded this summer if we can get some, uh, some of the trickier issues like rules of origin sorted out. Uh, I see the hook coming, so I better uh, wrap up. Uh, just one area that I would like to um, raise which has slightly unnerved me, and that's the, uh, the government's... The, uh, the impact of majority government on the Conservative government's foreign policy... Uh, domestic policy uh, was the, was the uh, focus through which the government looked, or the prism through which the government looked at most foreign policy issues over the last five years, from Arctic sovereignty to China, from Omar Khadr to Israel. Freed from those uh, tethers, I think Mr. Harper, he, the language he's been using is remaking foreign relations as a moral crusade. In his words, a struggle between good and bad. Uh, he sees Canada as a great country rising, and he sees uh, it's now time for us to, to flex our muscles. My thought is that if Mr. Harper becomes too cavalier on this front, that the, uh, the new muscular pragmatism uh, may end up becoming more muscular than pragmatic. Thank you. I'll leave it at that and uh, take my leave. Uh, just a reminder to you as well that uh, the question cards on your table do not fill out themselves. Please fill them out. Someone will come around and grab it from you, okay? And then I will take them and I will ask the questions on the way. Had lots of testosterone, bazookas, and muscular pragmatism. We will be getting some estrogen soon. But first, Andrew Coyne, uh, back with the uh, National Post in one of his first official duties, uh, taking place or taking part in today's forecasting. Andrew. I am very much in touch with my feminine side, though, Kim. So. Uh... Well, I'm, I'm a late addition to this uh, rank, so naturally Iverson has taken all my best lines. Uh, I was not, of course, part of the panel last year, uh, but I do want to review some of the predictions that I did make last year at this time uh, in the privacy of my own home. Uh, I predicted that the President Obama and the Republican leadership would fail to reach agreement on a debt ceiling. I believe I called it to August, so I was off by about a week. Uh, I said the European crisis would not be resolved within 2012. At that time, of course, few people were even talking about the European crisis. I thought I was ahead of the curve on that. I said the Dow would be down about, or the TSX would be down about 10 or 11 percent. It left some wiggle room there, and I called the crest of the Red River flood within a half a foot. So it was a good year for me on the predictions front, even though I'm not really, as I try to explain to people in these sessions, I'm not really in the predictions uh, game. I leave that to, to Warren Jeston and my fellow pundits. I'm more in the finger-pointing, backbiting, and recriminations game. <laughs> so I thought I would just uh, very quickly have a look back before looking forward, since looking back, I'm reasonably adept at predicting the past. Um, I want to impress upon you how significant the election was, that if anybody is thinking 
we in the pundit business tend to be overinvested in significance and we tend to be declaring that this or that is a historic game-changing election. And so when you say that about this, people will say, yes, yes, but you're being too excitable. They're all game-changing elections. But this is different in a lot of ways, one of which is this is not like the Tory breakthroughs of 58 and 84, the Diefenbaker and Mulroney sweeps, precisely because it wasn't a sweep and it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't some sudden rush of enthusiasm. It was built slowly over time. It's not a sweep. They built it on two power blocks, the West and Ontario. Adding Ontario to the Tory column is something they've been trying to do for decades now, and to have made that breakthrough in this election does to me herald something quite new. We've never seen a coalition quite like this in Canadian politics, one that's quite so dominated, not dominated but strong in the West, uh, and where this, this particular partnership of the West and Ontario, my line is the West is in and Ontario has joined it that Ontario's values and interests are much more aligned with the West than at any time I can recall. Uh, Ontario looks West more now than it did in the past. We're doing business more with the West now in the past. Uh, I think this is a really uh, important and significant election. It's also significant in good and bad ways that the government has so few seats in Quebec. Obviously, it's not ideal situation from the standpoint of you'd like to see representation across the country for the government. But the good news is from the Tory standpoint, and to some extent for the country is, they can now approach Quebec at their leisure. The thing that has bedeviled Tory parties in particular over the years has been this tendency to throw the Hail Mary pass trying to get 50 seats in Quebec. They don't need 50 seats in Quebec. They can get by with 10 or 15. And if they can develop a conservative constituency in Quebec that can deliver 15 seats for them, they will be governing this country, I would suggest, for quite a while. What we're going to see in the next few months, I will hazard a couple of predictions only out to the next, to, to say March, because I do think the next three months are going to be fascinating, because all three of the main federal parties uh, are going to be defining themselves uh, in quite significant ways. With the Tories, of course, we're going to find out at long last whether they do, in fact, have a vision. Uh, up until now, it's been a lot of uh, tic-tacking about, uh, and mostly they'll boast of the things that they didn't do. Well, we didn't bring in this and we didn't bring in that that those accursed liberals would have done, but it's been hard to identify uh, any particular Tory vision, and in fact, of course, they've been all over the map ideologically. Now, you say this to Tories, and I apologize if there are any card-carrying conservatives in the room, but they get very shirty and they say, no, 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 it's not that we've abandoned our principles to stay in power. We've simply discarded our convictions to remain in office. Why must you be so persnickety about this? Uh, so we will see whether, with, particularly with this coming budget, whether they're actually going to deliver a vision of their own. If they're not capable of doing it now, in the first year in power, with neither of their main rivals having leaders at this point, or permanent leaders, uh, then when can they? Uh, to be fair to them, uh, John mentioned a couple things, there have been things building up over time. Amid all this tacking about, they have been putting in place some fairly significant policy chunks, the lowering the corporate tax rate, these free trade deals, which I think are enormously significant. If we pull off this Canada-Europe deal, we will be the first advanced developed country to have a guaranteed access to both of the major markets in the world, Europe and the United States. That's an enormous competitive advantage. That's one that we can really run on. And when you add to that a Canada-India deal, uh, yeah, some prospective deals in Asia, it's really quite a significant policy plank, and I do think we should give them credit for that. The NDP, of course, will be going through their leadership race. Uh, people are moaning and groaning right now that the NDP are down in the polls and that they don't have significant leadership in, in Parliament, et cetera. None of this really matters. We're in the first year. It's four years away, the election. What matters is that they make the right choice for leader. The problem they've got is the four major candidates they have each have significant, or at least three of them have significant failings. Uh, Paul Dewar can't speak French. Uh, uh, Brian Topp has no political experience, and uh, uh, Thomas Mulcair is not particularly, uh, plays, doesn't particularly play well with others. Uh, but then you've got Peggy Nash, which is my side bet. She's got better French than Paul Dewar, admittedly not saying much. She's got more political experience than Brian Topp, okay, not saying much. And she's more likable than Tom Mulcair, okay, really not saying much. Uh, but I do think she's perhaps uh, the dark horse in that race to watch. I, I see the hook being driven, so I'll just close with the Liberals. The Liberals have an existential dilemma in front of them. They have to persuade themselves and the public that there is a need for a third party in Canadian politics. And both the Tories and the NDP, of course, will be trying to convince people that that is no longer the case. What the choice the Liberals have to make is, 
if they think that what they're going to do is simply be somewhere in the middle between the two, they'll be less right-wing than the Tories, less left-wing than the NDP, and sooner or later people will come back to their senses and realize the, the virtues of moderation, they'll be waiting a long time. What the liberals have to have the courage to do is to reinvent the center, to reinvent the center not as cautiously trimming on every issue, but as being bold, taking issues from the right or the left, uh, depending on which, on what, which is the, the necessity for each issue. If they're prepared to be bold, if they're prepared to reinvent themselves from top to bottom, they have a prospect of surviving. Uh, if I had to bet, <laughs> I would say they will not be that bold. But we will find out certainly early signals of this at their convention in January. So the next three months, as I say, will be a particularly fascinating period in Canadian political history. Thank you very much. Okay, I've received a few questions. Just a reminder again, if you want to get your questions, this is the last chance you will have to get them in, so I encourage you to do it. I'm not sure how I feel like or how much I like being named the hook, as long as it just kind of ends there and there's no other uh, syllable added at the end. Um, as promised, uh, we have one more speaker for you to give some balance to all this testosterone on the stage. Please join me in welcoming Diane Francis. Thank you. Estrogen, yes. Balanced, I'm not sure I've ever been accused of that. Anyway, I am going to give you some other viewpoints. Um, wanted to mention, as other speakers, that it's been a particularly gloomy year. I mean, there's been some inspiring things like Arab, Arab, Arab Spring, but it's been pretty gloomy in terms of the economic headlines, except for the Republican primaries. I don't know how many of you have ever gone to comedy clubs. I used to go to comedy clubs alike. It's sort of open mic night every week in the Republican Party. It's, it's been a, a wonderful show. Really enjoyed it. Um, on the economic side, I'm just going to sort of go through this because we have uh, limited time. Um, I'm going to take another uh, a contrarian viewpoint. Uh, uh, my husband pointed out to me a, a hedge fund manager, Doug Cass, out of the United States, has uh, done forecasting every year, and he is pretty remarkable. Last year he was 50-50, including has forecast that the S&P would end up exactly at the same point it started in the year, and he was absolutely right. So I'm going to defer to him a little bit. He's not obviously going to be necessarily that accurate, but he, he has a viewpoint that I think actually I kind of want to believe. Uh, he's very bullish. He says that the growth is modest in the U.S., of course, but the consumer is back. Unemployment will go down. He has five surprises he talks about in his, in his uh, estimates, his forecasts for next year. The U.S. stock market will approach its all-time high in 2012 as growth and the economy accelerates as the year progresses. Let's hope that's true. Number two, and I think it's predicated a little bit on this, he, as he forecasts that Clinton and Bush, who are quite close, form a bipartisan coalition that persuades the parties to unite in, address, uh, in addressing fiscal imbalances. That would be amazing and not impossible. Um, he also feels that the European debt crisis will lead to far more forceful and successful policy. They will kick the can, they won't solve it, but he feels pretty, pretty uh, optimistic about that. And I think it's pretty clear Sarkozy will probably lose and the Germans then will just be in charge. Um, the Fed will tie monetary policy in the United States to labor markets. So the goal would be a 6.5% unemployment rate. This is a huge transformative change. That means cheap money, low interest rates. His fifth surprise forecast is that financial stocks, now on this side of the pond, not the European side, so that's Canadian and American banks, will be a leading market sector as loan demand recovers. There will be a rash of mergers and acquisitions in that sector and domestic institutions, U.S. and Canadian, will enjoy market share, share gains at the expense of the flailing European institutions. Uh, all interesting. Um, hope he's right uh, on every one of them. Now, to Canada, um, I would say that the Canadian dollar, as Warren and, and has pointed out, will bounce around in a range. Uh, we really are a petrodollar. 30% of our trade now is oil sales to the U.S. And so as oil goes, so goes the sea dollar for the most part. Um, and uh, that, that one bank in Canada has actually forecasted a 93 cent dollar in the first quarter of the year. I guess that would be predicated on 
really uh, lagging uh, commodity prices as well as oil prices. Um, on the oil side, obviously Chinese and American growth uh, will determine the price of oil. Um, another, another issue that may, and this is something that's sort of in the back of a lot of people's minds, and I don't want to take a guess on this, that Israel may uh, attack Iran over the nuclear program, and that, of course, would, would lead to a conflict that would probably shut the Straits of Hormuz and lead to $130 a barrel of oil. Uh, hope doesn't happen. Hope they don't have a nuclear program that's dangerous, all those things. But uh, that seems to be, it's just sort of out there. Natural gas is lousy. The price is horrible. The Americans are making lots, finding lots, and producing of shale gas. They're pushing us right out of the export market. Exports are down by half in the last three years, and I think Canada will be shut out of the natural gas export market within five years. Not good. Not good news at all. We used to have 18% of that market. Um, gold prices, uh, I think it'll hit 2,000. Industrial metals will lag. Agriculture won't be great. And on the, uh, to finish off on the uh, political side, uh, I would say that the Obama-Romney contest, or Obama-anti-Obama -Obama, uh, nominee, uh, will be very close. I would think that if Romney can demonstrate that he can, in fact, get both sides of the Congress to collaborate, that even someone like me, who likes Obama, might say this is the guy who should be CEO, because the animus is quite horrific in the U.S. But again, that could all be trumped by a Clinton-Bush collaboration to make it all work nicely. And finally, um, Canada, in Canada, uh, Ontario and Quebec in 2014 will overtake the Canadian federal government in debts. Uh, not good. Uh, Ontario has been warned. Uh, my guess is that we're going to see uh, taxes, cutbacks in Ontario, very severe ones this year, and uh, probably massive privatizations, booze, lotteries, and maybe nuclear reactors. Um, uh, on balance, I'm more optimistic, I think, than most people. I hope Cass is right, as I said before, and the headlines will be better regardless because we have the Summer Olympics, we have the World Cup runoff for Brazil in 2014, which will be held in in Ukraine and Poland, which I adore, and then we have the Republicans to entertain us. So on that note, thank you. All right, thank you for everyone for your questions. We have lots of questions to choose from, and uh, it's kind of odd, I have to say, coming off the year that we did, I don't think I've ever seen dismal scientists and journalists be so positive, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, my first question, actually this goes to each of you, and I'm going to ask you to give a quick response in 10 seconds. Uh, of every, there's been a lot of black swan events that happened this year, uh, completely unexpected, out of left field. Uh, what would you say, in your opinion, is a possible, improbable event in 2012 that could have a huge impact? Andrew, you're laughing. You go first. <laughs> So, so what completely unforeseeable event would I foresee? Exactly. I'm glad you understand the question. Uh, um, the most likely, I'll put it that way. Uh, Israel striking Iran. Thank you. Diane? Mm. Something horrible in Pakistan. John? Stumped. Stephen Harper leaving and forming a band with Paul McCartney. <laughs> a very quick anecdote. He, he, Harper told me that he... That is horrible. He but told anyway. me that he, he, he'd had a whole bunch of people jamming in 24 Sussex, uh, Brian Adams and Randy Bachman. And he, I said, who would you like to jam? He said, Paul McCartney, but it won't happen because I didn't take his phone call when he called me about the seal hunt. <laughs> Warren. Well, as I said earlier, the risks are political, and I think the biggest uh, one to watch out for is uh, a meltdown in the Iranian situation. Terence. I don't, I don't have one. I can't, don't have that kind of an imagination. You've got a bazooka. You should have a lot I'm, of them. I'm trying very hard to look comfortable and cool on this stool. <laughs> so the worst thing could happen in 2012, and he'll fall off this stool right now. I'm the we wait a little longer. The okay. <laughs> Uh, this question, I don't know who it's from, but it's uh, addressed for John and Andrew, but anyone is actually welcome to answer this one. Uh, which candidate for the NDP federal leadership 
does the, do the Harper Conservatives not want to see win? Well, I talked to a uh, very senior Conservative who said they didn't particularly want to see Paul Dewar win, because Dewar is, uh, uh, his French isn't good, but he's a very nice man and, and, and very uh, mainstream. I think he would attract, uh, he would appeal to a sort of broad audience. Uh, they quite like the idea of Tom Mulcair winning because they think he's wedgeable. <laughs> Not wedgeable, but wedgeable. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I have much to add, add to that. I, I do think that Mulcair is a combustible force. I have some personal experience of that. Uh, yes, you do. Uh, yes, you do. Uh, I think, as I say, I, I, if I was going to say who I think was likely to win, I, I would put a bet on, on Peggy Nash. But I agree with John that Dewar is closer to the center uh, and he is very presentable. But I'm not sure if he can get over this hurdle of his, of his French. The one other candidate who has sort of gone beneath the radar but did very well in the debate is Nathan Cullen. I'm sorry? Nathan Cullen, who is the BC uh, MP young guy, very smart. Uh, he will be a major force in the coming years, whether he wins or not. Next question. Can Canada afford a dollar parity? Do we risk becoming nothing more than a well-run Saudi Arabia? Terrence. Uh, dollar parity, sure. Uh, I don't see any uh, problem with the, the, the value of the currency being the major driver of economic uh, of economic development or investment. It has a short-term impact when it moves, or if it settles in at uh, whatever the value is, uh, adjustments will be made. It's better to have a stronger currency than a weak currency. I can, uh, that's for sure. The uh, weak currency gives everybody an escape hatch, as it has happened in the past, to, uh, uh, to uh, in, in terms of making economic decisions and investment decisions. A strong dollar is fine. Andrew? Just very quickly uh, to, to add to that, we should thank our lucky stars we have a floating exchange rate. There were proposals over recent years to go to fixed exchange rates for the United States or even a single currency. I think they watch in the European experience that has put an end, I hope, to that discussion. It's also, by the way, very bad news for the sovereignists in Quebec who were claiming, of course, that we'd have a, a common currency between an independent Quebec and Canada. No one's going to believe that anymore. So thank our lucky stars that we got the flexible exchange rate. But also, there is no significance whatsoever to parity between the Canadian dollar and the US dollar. I know we all in the media, we all get fixated on this whenever they get up close to each other. The only reason we pay any attention to that is because they have the same name. So one of my long-standing proposals is to change the name of the Canadian currency. And what would you change it to? Uh, the pelt. <laughs> <laughs> Redland of our fur trading heritage. <clears throat> That'll be six pelts, please. I can't believe Andrew's getting laughs out of this old material. <laughs> um, okay, for each of you, again, quick answer on this. What would you say is going to be the come-from-behind success story in 2012? It can be either political or business. Oh, I can use this as my out-of-the-blue unexpected. Okay. So you're answering the question I asked three questions ago? That's right. Ago? Plus, the, two answer, two, one answer, two questions. Okay. RIM makes a spectacular comeback. Shares shoot up to 150 bucks a share. And you're basing that on? Well, it's a prediction. <laughs> well, the shares are up 4% today, so... It... There you go. It's starting already. Based, based on what? Well, are you just trying to make a what? No, I'm, I'm being somewhat uh, flippant, but, uh, you know, I don't know enough about what's going on within that company and exactly what their technological problem is. So, they therefore, you're making a, this prediction? They obviously have a market problem. Since they're losing market share, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to notice that. But you never know, they might pull something out of the hat. Maybe there's something there. Maybe it won't go to 150, but it could recover despite all the gloom and doom from the analysts. That is a bold, bazooka-like prediction. Okay, who's next? Warren, come from behind story. Well, RIM would have to go up tenfold in order to get back to its previous peak, uh, which would be a huge comeback story. I think if we're wrong in our forecast, it may well be that we become so negative on the U.S. economy for so long that we have counted out the consumer and a variety of others. And in fact, if there is a surprise, it may well be that the U.S. economy is stronger this year. John? Uh, a young whippersnapper named Bob Ray will probably emerge as the permanent leader of the Liberal Party for want of anybody else wanting the job. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew? Uh, well, this is, this is way out of left field, but, but uh, don't, uh, I can't believe I've been saying this, but don't count out Jean Charest in Quebec. Uh, this, uh, you know, the Coalition de, de l'Avenue du Québec is the perfect Quebec political party because their main platform is we don't have to choose. 
You know, we, we're going to put away the whole question of, of sovereignty versus federalism, and, and we're going to come to grips with our economy, but we won't actually say how. And I wonder whether that's going to be sustainable in the long term. Sheree uh, is a survivor. He's been counted out so many times before. Uh, and certainly the PQ are doing their best to make both of those other parties look good. So, you know, the guy who's been, including by me, counted as dead uh, may surprise us. Final words to you, Diane. Yeah, this isn't a come from behind. This is a come back from the grave. Um, Stephen Jobs, uh, his biography is absolutely superb. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Embedded in the book is an announcement about Apple TV that he actually nailed it. And they are going to be rolling this out this year and next. And it will absolutely do to television, Hollywood, and uh, what, what happened to print and music, publishing and music. Uh, it'll be completely viewer-centric and not advertiser-centric. It'll be TV anywhere, anytime, on any platform. And he will, again, even though he's gone, have changed the world. And then Research in Motion will buy Apple, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to thank everyone for your questions, great questions that you passed on. And uh, also, I'd like to uh, just highlight in front of you, you have a complimentary National Post subscription. It's provided exclusively for you all today, uh, which entitles you to a 30-day complimentary subscription. I'd like to thank our panelists. You may not get off the bar stools quite yet, though. Uh, and uh, thank you all for joining us. It was really nice to spend uh, the beginning of the new year with all of you. And I'd like to bring up uh, Jamie Watt, thank him, the Canadian Club of Toronto, and Gordon Fisher and the National Post. Great, thank you. Well, that was terrific. You can see why we've been doing it for 35 years. So thanks to our panelists, Terence and Andrew, Diane, Warren, and John. And I promise you, Terry, we're new stools for next year. It's the first thing on. It's the first thing on the list. I admire your courage and your willingness to be so declarative and frank, especially so earlier in the year. Special thanks also to Kim for guiding us uh, through our panel. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our partner, the National Post, and our sponsor, Scotiabank. Uh, you can see what our sage forecaster said. You can replay every word of it by visiting the Canadian Club website and downloading our podcast of today's event. You can learn more about the club and upcoming events at canadianclub.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, CDNCLUBTO, for our latest updates. This concludes the television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We thank Rogers and 680 News for their continuing support of our club and all our activities. Thanks again for joining us today and best wishes for a prosperous and successful 2012. Thank you very much. This lunch is adjourned.